Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Good to be in front of you today. I just want to give you a heads up that after the long weekend, uh, we will hopefully be moving our gathering indoors uh, from the parking lot into the building. And uh, in that process, I just want to take a moment to thank Jake Peters and New Hope Transport for generously providing us a stage for the entire summer for our drive-in gatherings, but also for graduation gatherings and meeting the needs of the community at large. So um, another thing I need to do is a huge shout out to all of our staff for being so flexible over the summer, all of our servant leaders for giving and the way they have ga- gave and served over their summer. And uh, we are actually excited to see what fall is going to bring us as we gather together. As a matter of fact, we're going to kick off the fall series with a new series, so to speak. It's called This is Church. And... Um, I'm excited about getting into that. I think we need a refresher as to what church is all about because it's been so crazy over the last almost two years, has it not? Anyway, now back to our summer playlist. Um, Our series here, we're counting down now to our second last song of the summer. And today's song is Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. Now, if you didn't know, Leonard Cohen was a Canadian singer-songwriter. He was a poet. He was a novelist. He was born in Montreal to a Jewish family back in 1934. Uh, Cohen pursued a, a, pursued a career as a poet, as a novelist during the 50s and 60s, and he really didn't begin a music career until 1967 when he was at the age of 33. His work explored numerous topics like religion, politics, isolation, depression, sexuality, loss, death, uh, romantic re- relationships, He was inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, along with many other distinguished awards and recognitions. But his most famous song is Hallelujah. It was first released back in 1984, but it wasn't an instant hit. As a matter of fact, 10 years later, Jeff Buckley released a song on his 1994 album called Grace. And it was this recording that would ultimately catapult Hallelujah to fame because Buckley's version of the song was featured in the movie Shrek in 2001, 20 years ago. And if that, it introduced that song to an entirely new audience. So let me just give you some other little-known facts about this song. Bob, uh, Cohen told Bob Dylan that it took him two years to write the song. There are some reports that it took him up to five years to write this song. The original version had over 80 verses. Uh, The final version of the song actually has 15 verses. Um, Another little known fact, this song is broadcast at 2 a.m. every Saturday morning by the Israeli Defense Force uh, on their radio channel. This song has been featured in TV shows like uh, The O.C., Scrubs, West Wing, House Without a Trace, ER, uh, and numerous others. Uh, When Justin Lake, uh, Timberlake performed this song, Uh, on the charity telethon, Hope for Haiti. Uh, His version marked the first time that the song actually entered into the top 40 of the U.S. singles chart. Cohen himself earned over a million dollars in royalties from the sales of singles by the X Factor winner, uh, um, Alexandra Burke, and her take and her version of Hallelujah. And that version by Alexandra Burke became the fastest-selling download single in history. Now, following his death in November of 2016, um, the song sales saw a spike. 
And this sent Cohen's original version to, uh, to number 59 on the Hot 100, which was Cohen's first appearance on the chart at all. So really, you know, random facts, but very interesting. But this song has been covered by artists ranging from Bob Dylan, Bon Jovi, Bono, Katie Lang, Pentatonix, and even Susan Boyle. Just, just throwing it out there. Now, Google if you don't know who I'm talking about. The song was sung on the eve of President Biden's inauguration, and interestingly enough, Donald Trump played the song at the Republican National Convention in 2020. Uh, this song has been in almost every TV show that has run longer than two seasons at least once. And um, in 2009, it was funny because Cohen himself commented on the overuse of this song. He went on to say that, uh, I think it's a good song, but I think too many people sing it. <laughs> and when, when he was asked why he thought uh, the song was so beloved by people, he replied, it's got a good chorus. So, you know, here's a guy who spent years struggling with the song which eventually became one of the most oft-performed songs in American musical history. So, now again, the, the key word to this whole song is a word that many usually don't give a whole lot of thought about, and yet it's still one of the most important words in Scripture. You know, we read this word in the Psalms and, and, uh, it, it, the, and end with its focus in the book of Revelation. And when we hear the word, Hallelujah! At first glance, it's filled with trumpets and full choir. It's, it's like Easter time. Or, or it's angels clothed in light and these riches beyond measure being brought to a baby at Christmas time. And, and, and so, you know, again, it's a word that's also highlighted in our liturgy that we sing when the church gathers. And it's an exuberant word. It literally means praise you, Yah. Okay, And Yah is just another name for Yahweh, which is another name for God or Jehovah. And so translated, the song is praise the Lord. So hallelujah itself is a rich and ancient Hebrew word of prayer. And it's used to express gratitude and praise for God. And, and it's a heartfelt praise. It's a joyous acknowledge, acknowledgement of God's glory. It's a very powerful word when it's said, and especially when it's sung. I personally have, you know, in, in the researching of this, this life lesson, I, I, I marveled as I watched Bono and U2 getting the crowd singing hallelujah uh, before breaking into Streets With No Name in a, in a concert in Montreal or in Toronto. He had the entire stadium with the roof open and the, and the, 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 the stars shining down singing hallelujah. The irony, people, believers and non, singing praise the Lord. But today I want to present to you that Leonard Cohen's song explores the existence of a different kind of hallelujah. Or should I say different kinds of hallelujah. Cohen himself said, he said, it explains that many kinds of hallelujahs do exist. And all the perfect and broken hallelujahs have equal value. And, and I need to be honest, let's, let's all be honest here. Hallelujah, the song itself never fails to move me when I hear it sung, right? And I know I'm not alone. And I know that you know that this song is a religious one. Because more specifically, even, it's about godly people who have fallen from grace. The song lyrics are filled with references to the Old Testament, in particular to ancient uh, Israel's rock star, if I can call him that, King David. 
You know, most people know David and his defeat of Goliath, you know, an inspiration to the underdogs everywhere, right? But when David was still only a shepherd, he found fame as a musician. And hallelujah opens with the phrase, I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. And this actually likely refers to the moment when David's musical gifts actually soothed King Saul. We read it in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23, that said, Whenever the Spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul, and he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. So what we see is that it was David's um, musicianship that first earned him a, a spot in the royal court. The first step towards his rise to power, really, in uniting the Jewish people. The next line says, you know, but you really don't care for music, do you? you know, also, uh, it feels pretty Jewish, if I could put it that way, but for a very different reason. A gentleman by the name of Ellen Light, he wrote a book about this song, and it's called The Holy or the Broken. And he says this, he says, The first verse almost instantly undermines its own solemnity. After offering such an inspiring image in the opening lines, Cohen remembers who he's speaking to, and he reminds his listeners that you really don't care for music, do you? And one of the funny things about Hallelujah is that it's got this profound opening couplet about King David, and then immediately it has this Woody Allen type of line of, you really don't care for music, do you? And nothing is more classically Jewish than undercutting yourself with some self-deprecating humor. Interesting insight. The song goes on to describe its own musical progression. The minor fall, the major lift. It's a musical metaphor, perhaps, for alternating expressions of joy or sorrow. The music itself symbolizes a lifelong tension between defeat and victory, between despair and hope. And, it's, and it is of interest that this song concludes in a relative major key, hopeful, but still not without a degree of doubt. You know, King David wasn't just a divinely gifted musician. He was also, in the words of some, a stud, if I can put it that way. You know, David, his name David means beloved. So he was beloved of both God and humankind. He was loved desperately, but he was especially loved by women, if I can just throw it out there. You know, it was women who were chanted in 1 Samuel 18.7, much to the consternation of King Saul, that, you know, Saul had slain his his thousands, but David, his ten thousands. And this song addresses one of David's more famous episodes of womanizing in its second verse. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. And again, the, the reference here is to David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba, who was a beautiful woman married to a soldier named Uriah. We read about the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and one evening David wasn't sleeping, so what did he do? He went walking along the rooftop. He saw Bathsheba bathing, and he was captivated by her. It's kind of like creep all the way through, but that's what took place. We read that in Scripture. And after that meeting, David seduced and got her pregnant and then tried to cover up his sin. So what does he do? He orders her husband back from the front from the war and says, you know, go and, and lie with your wife. Go sleep with your wife. And what he was trying to do is that he wanted Uriah to think that the baby would be his. But unfortunately for David, or fortunately, it depends on how you look at it, her husband, Uriah, that is, 
was so loyal to his man, so loyal to the king, that he wouldn't go home during a time of war and lie with his wife. He instead stayed outside. And so David, not knowing what to do, sent him to the front lines to be killed and married Bathsheba himself. And so when you look at the story of David and Bathsheba, it's about abuse of power in the name of lust, which leads to murder and intrigue and brokenness. Because until this point, David had been a brave and gifted leader, but now he began to let his guard down and he began to take what he wanted And yet David is God's chosen one, the righteous king who would rule Israel as God's servant. However, the great King David becomes no more than a baffled king when he starts to live for himself. And even after the drama, the grasping, the conniving, sinful King David is, when you think about it, still Israel's greatest poet and warrior and hope. And yet there's so much brokenness in David's life and only God can redeem and reconcile this complicated personality. And that's why the baffled and the wounded David begins to lift up to God a painful hallelujah. And again, this isn't the only reference to a sexual episode destroying a man with a higher purpose in the song. As a matter of fact, the next line jumps to another famous biblical story, that of Samson and Delilah. She tied you to a kitchen chair. She broke your throne. She cut your hair. Again, in Judges 16, Samson, arguably the first Jewish superhero, he drew his power from his hair. And Delilah, the woman he loved and and maybe also a weapon of the Philistines, learns the secret source of his strength and she shaves his head while he sleeps, leading to Samson's capture. And then Colin ends that verse with, and from your lips she drew the hallelujah. And I think the lessons in these stories is clear that even for the larger than life figures and leaders of nation, the greatest physical pleasure can lead to disaster. Colin writes this, he says, love is not a victory march, it's a cold and it's a broken Hallelujah. He also said, I wanted to write something in the duration of the Hallelujah Chorus, but from a different point of view. I had a desire to affirm my own faith in life, not in some formal religious way, but with enthusiasm, with emotion. He went on and he wrote, there's a religious Hallelujah, but there are many other ones. When one looks at the world and his proper life, there is only one thing to say, even if it's a cold and broken Hallelujah. And I think the more that I've listened to the song, the more I have come to recognize that this hallelujah expresses the struggles that actually many of us go through, especially when we're expected to praise God, but our hearts may not be into it. Anyone who has ever praised God, you know, for newfound love, only later to have your heart broken, knows something about a broken hallelujah. You know, anyone who has ever praised God for a trusted friend, only later to have that friend betray that trust, knows something about a broken hallelujah. You know, anyone who has ever praised God for the joy of remission, only to later hear that bitter word, recurrence, knows something of a broken hallelujah. 
And Cohen sings of how hallelujahs emerge from the ordinary aspects of human existence, from flawed and strained relationships. And yet they are still hallelujah. And so we can sing praise and hallelujah even in the most troubling of circumstances because there's actually something more at work than in our fragility. From the very beginning, our, our faith as Christians has been about the proclamation of joy. And when we lose sight of that joy, that, that hope, even of our broken hallelujahs, that's when our faith seems to be gray and drab. But from the very beginning of our Christian story to the very end, what we see in Scripture is that this thing called joy is to be at its core. As a matter of fact, you can take a look at the book of Luke, and we see that Luke begins his book with the angels singing, For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, right? And yet at the end of the book of Luke, with the horrors of the torture and death and even persecution sort of sitting like fresh wounds in in the hearts of the characters, Luke writes, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Life is about broken hallelujahs. It's about knowing that God is always present even in the face of evil. In our worship, in our prayers, in our songs, in our hearts. It's what Christians do. We bear witness to what is possible even in the darkest of days. Our hallelujahs are to rise up. You know, people can cause trauma, pain, suffering. But the joy that we have from Jesus still persists. The world doesn't give it. The world can't take it away. Joy comes from outside of ourselves, outside an otherwise tragic human condition from the love and the grace of God. The joy from without becomes the joy bubbling from within. And no, we don't create joy. We don't do that. We enter into the joy that God created. And the only condition for joy to emerge is being in the presence of God. You know, every preacher, and, and I say this to myself, we have all had, as, a, as speakers, a first-hand experience with this concept of, of the good coming from bad. Let me just break it down for you. You know, there's so many times where I've actually admitted to myself that that was probably the worst life lesson I've ever given. And then, of course, I surprised myself because the next, usually the next week or after is even worse. But I walk off the stage, and I'm thinking, that's the worst. That was just horrible. And then, of course, somebody meets me. Maybe it's... It's in the aisle, or maybe it's on the parking lot, or maybe I get a phone call next week, and, and, and it's somebody with grateful tears in their eyes. And that, you know, they heard something on that day that spoke to their heart, that spoke to their deepest needs. And it's in the end, I realize that it's my short sightedness that didn't recognize the space between my message and the listener. That space there is actually. Holy ground, it's sacred space where the Holy Spirit takes it and moves it in wonderful ways. It's not about me. It's how God begins to speak to us. 
using the words and the actions of those around us to minister to us. And this, this hallelujah is actually a command to praise. And it's not this invitation or suggestion to do so. In, in the Jewish faith, it's, it, it's called a mitzvah. It, and, and so it doesn't matter whether our hearts are overflowing with joy or whether they're weighed down by sorrow. It's commanded. And even for those whose faith is secure, this is not easy. So when we're in pain, when we're not in good health, when a cherished friendship has ended, when a family has been broken apart, when we've maybe lost a dear one, there is this command, this mitzvah, to praise. Somebody once said that grace enters our lives through a wound. And so as we encounter history, as we visit memorials and remembering the sacred ground of the past, so to speak, and seeing God still present in and through the evils of suffering, even through the horror and pain, we come to understand the healing power in something as simple as a broken hallelujah. And it gives us a chance for redemption, for salvation, for new life from the ashes of tragedy. And I really think once we start getting honest with ourselves and only by knowing and naming the extent and depth of our brokenness or our disharmony, will we find a way forward. Confronting our brokenness, both individually and together, is integral to the hope for healing. We see that in our culture today. And, and we've all seen suffering and we empathized with suffering, especially as we encountered the experiences of others. And I actually think that this empathy draws us all closer together and interconnectedness, so to speak. But not only together, it draws us closer to God. And there are those times where we're just calling out to God to intervene, like what's happening in Afghanistan. But we've also experienced suffering in our own lives. Whether it's a loss of a job or maybe a relationship or illness or hunger or homelessness or the death of a beloved friend or maybe even a parent. As a matter of fact, there are two funerals that stand out in my ministry experience. Both with over a thousand people came to these memorials, overflowing the buildings in which the, they were held. And what I realized in both those memorials was that the church family can never be separated, even by death. And nothing can separate us from the love that God has for each one of us or from the love that even that we have for each other. And in the midst and the moment of, those prof of that profound sorrow at those funerals, I can honestly say that deep within my soul and even within the soul of others came an overwhelming and I would go so far as to say a broken hallelujah as we walked together during those dark days. And so when we sing our hallelujahs, whether at Christmas or at Easter, you know, at our moments of deepest sorrow or highest joy, we know that God is with us, that He's present, that He's active, that He's loving, that He's eternal, that He's filling our lives with joy. Even 
in the unavoidable suffering, our voices rise together in our holy and our broken. Hallelujah. And the fact is, I look at this song and it's a song of, it's a psalm. It's a reluctant psalm of praise. That's what it is. This is a reluctant psalm of praise expressing gratitude in the midst of sorrow. Gratitude that comes from broken times in our lives. The, the failures that haunt all of us. The disappointments that weigh more and more heavily on us as we even grow older. You know, I go so far as to say it's probably not so much a, a song for the young as it is for those who have dealt with the endless ups and downs and, and those who can relate to the words from their own personal experiences. What we know is that Cohen struggles to affirm in spite of all the pain and sadness that we've known that, that still that, that life is good. Every day is still a blessing. And therefore we praise and because of that we express our gratitude to God even in our darkest hours, even when our hallelujahs are broken. And the important thing is not that God should hear our praise, but rather we express gratitude for the gift of life itself, especially when we're feeling anything but thankful. Because it's the only life that we have. There's a rabbinic legend that talks about Moses when he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights in the book of Exodus. And finally, he, he descended down the mountain. He's ready to present God's commandments to the Israelites. And I, I think of the movie The Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston, and he's got these Ten Commandments, and he's ready to show the Israelites. And you, you see the sense of elation and of, a, you know, of, of even the sense of hope concerning the gift of the law. He's got the law, and he's about to deliver it to his, to his people. And what he didn't know at that time was that while he was absent, the people became impatient and built a golden calf. And they were now worshiping it in the manner that their Egyptian slave masters had worshipped other idols. So there's Moses filled with anger and profound disappointment. And he takes these tablets and he throws them to the ground and they're smashed into countless fragments. Of course, we read later, following the people's repentance, Moses goes back up the mountain and he fashions a second set of tablets just like the first set. And then, Legend tells us that uh, they're placed into the Ark of the Covenant, eventually to be placed in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. And so the rabbis ask a simple question. They ask, whatever happened to the first set of the commandments, all those shattered fragments? And the answer is that both sets of tablets, both the whole and the shattered, were placed together in the Ark. That both belong there. And what we have in this legend really is a paradigm for life itself, that the Ark of the Covenant is our hearts, and these hold both the whole and the shattered elements of our lives, of, of our personal experiences, and they actually belong together. Now again, I think the song says something that we all need to admit. We're not perfect. We make mistakes, and some of them are really bad mistakes or transgressions, or let me just say it outright, it's sin. We waste precious time on things that don't matter. We wound those that we love, and they wound us, and wonderful things happen, and then really terrible things happen. And when it's all said and done, amidst all of our disappointments and failures, 
And we've all had maybe our share. We all have to do our best to appreciate this one brief life that God has given us. And then you have to ask, how are we supposed to praise God when our hopes have been shattered and our hearts have been broken? And I think that that's a very daunting challenge, but it's also an obligation. Because sooner or later, every one of us drinks from a bitter cup. Things go smoothly. Things fall apart. That's life. We go back and forth between gratitude and disappointment. And in the midst of this never-ending tug of war, we are called to appreciate, we are called to affirm that life is good. Hallelujah. Colossians 3.17 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So today I want to leave with you seven reasons to sing hallelujah based on Psalm 147. Even if your hallelujah is broken. First, we sing, we sing to Him because He's a builder. Just look at the universe in all of its glory. You know, scientists continue to search for the source of, that all, you know, of all that exists, and yet we're clearly told that God created it all. His handiwork calls us to praise Him in song. But He also built the church. We read in Matthew 16, verse 18, the words of Jesus, and He says to Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You know, satanic powers have sought to destroy the church since the beginning, but instead, the Lord's people keep breaking through the gates of hell and bringing out the captives who come to trust Him. And you got to think, no wonder churches are known for their singing. You know, for when we raise up our song to the captain of our salvation, when we raise up a hallelujah, and the fact is, God is still building as a matter of fact, we continue to read scriptures, we see that he's preparing a place for all of us who are saved, who have trusted in Christ. We read in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He is still at work building. Secondly, we sing to him because he's a healer. Verse 3, he is, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Think about it this way, especially what's going on in our world right now. God designed you and I with healing in our very nature. Your body is a healing factory. And if you removed your immune system, you would die within hours, weeks, or days, right? It depends. But your body is constantly healing you uh, of life-threatening diseases and other things. In other words, we have a healing God already at work in us. That's the way we're created. But God also steps in at times to heal beyond our body's natural gifts. The Bible says in James 1, he says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And so I go so far as to say the gift of medicine is from God. 
Yes, wonderful people devote their lives to discovering how our bodies work and how to devise medicines and machines to help us heal or to stay well. And isn't it interesting that all the chemicals needed for every medicine on earth have always been here? All we needed to do was to discover them and combine them, these elements to create them. We don't make anything new. We just use what God has given us to create what is needed. And then on occasion, God steps in to heal by his own hand. Within his will and by his own power. And he at times directly superimposes a miracle of healing upon life. And yes, I believe in divine healing. And finally, the greatest healing is that of the healing of our sins. And the Bible often refers to that subject many times, right? And everyone who is saved has experienced the greatest healing possible, the healing of a sin-sick soul. And anyone here who's listening who is unsaved, that doesn't know the Lord, be assured that the healer is ready to forgive and to cleanse you if you come to him by faith. If you come to Jesus and let him speak to you. Third, we sing to him because he's all-knowing. Verses 4 and 5 say, He determines the number of the stars. He calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. So God knows exactly how many stars are in the heavens. He has a name for every one of them. Just think about that. We don't know how many universes exist beyond our own, and yet God knows each galaxy, each universe, and every star by name. So when you think of his knowledge, it shouldn't surprise you that he knows you personally and that he cares about you as an individual. He knows your name. He knows the numbers of hair on your head. And who knows, maybe he even has a name for each of those hairs. His understanding is infinite. There are no surprises for him. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. So what's our response? We sing to him. We honor him. We praise him for his great wisdom and understanding. And fourth, we sing to him because he's the sustainer. Verses 6 to 11, The Lord sustains the humble. But he casts the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain. The grass grows on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. God sustains his creation. When you think about this, like this is crazy. In each apple, there are enough seeds for an entirely new orchard. Bees make more honey than they could possibly ever use. There's enough pollen in each tree to start a forest larger than the one the tree stands in currently. I think God just loves to go overboard when he makes things and supplies their needs. And God has created a world where no one needs to be hungry. It's humankind who has caused starvation. It's politics and it's selfishness that caused little kids to go to sleep crying for food at night all over this world. And God made a world in which we all, in which all that we need is available if only we can bring ourselves to know Him, to love Him, to follow Him, and to act toward each other the way 
he demands. It is he who sustains us. It is he to whom we must sing. Five, he becomes our protector. That's why we sing to him. Extol the Lord, Jerusalem, praise your God, Zion. He strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. Deuteronomy 3.16 says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear. Do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. We don't have to live in fear. God will never leave us. And those who trust in him have his protection. And he holds us in his hand. He keeps the enemy from gaining victory over us. He is our protector. Number six, we sing to him because he's the commander. He sends his command to earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool, scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. What the psalmist is saying is that God speaks with the voice of authority. He can order snow one day and melt it the next. It's interesting that it was said of Jesus that he was spoke as one with authority. And indeed, that is the way that God speaks. He calls to each heart. He calls us to come to him for salvation. He calls each Christian and tells us to come to him so that we can take his yoke upon us, that we can have his rest. And he commands each believer to go into all the world, to share the good news, to bring people to faith and discipleship. That is our calling, all of us. And finally, we sing to him because he's a revealer. Final two verses. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws, his decrees to Israel, and he's done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. So we close with the truth that he declares his word to his people. He speaks and he works. His word is the only real, lasting, and forever forever truth in this world. We can trust it. We can believe it. And we can share it. So finally, we can still sing praise and hallelujah, even in the most troubling of circumstances, because there is something more at work in us than our fragility. And hallelujah is not just a shout of praise. May I present to you that hallelujah is a way of life and that our job is to live it as loudly as we sing it, even if it's broken. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are close to the brokenhearted, and I thank you that you know my deepest longings and that your love gives us comfort and hope. We bring our brokenness to you today, knowing that in you and in you alone we are made whole. God, some days feel very, almost too hard, where we're hurting or struggling and fighting fear and worrying at every turn. But in the midst of it all, you haven't left us to fend for ourselves. So forgive us for doubting that you're there. Forgive us for thinking that you've forgotten. Forgive us for believing that, you know, I somehow know the better way. But rather, may we recognize that you're fully trustworthy, 
that you are all-powerful, that you are able, and that you are Lord over every situation, no matter how difficult it may seem. That you are our healer, and that you'll never waste the grief that we carry today, and anything is possible with you. And I ask for your comfort to surround those who weep. I pray for the peace of your presence to cover our minds and our thoughts. And as you remind us, the enemy can never steal us out of your hands. We just commit ourselves to you in your name. Amen. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Here it is. It's a little different, this one. Soul Sanctuary. May each of you be strong enough and also human enough to acknowledge your own imperfections, to mourn your losses, and simply to be grateful for that mixed bag of blessings, especially the jumbled and bewildering mixture of experiences that we simply call life. And yes, in spite of everything, may you be able to express a heartfelt, albeit broken, hallelujah. Now go and live the church, and we'll see you next week.